Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and teachers. I am Paul Esser, a PhD student in Hebrew Bible at Yale University. And I'm Rosie Candethel, PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. Rachel Wren and Tim McNinch are off this week. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Tim. Hope you're doing something fun. <laughs> but Paul, hey, you're up for this one. It's Genesis 21, verses 8 through 21. And tell us, what do we have here? Yeah, it is the story about the expulsion of Hagar, uh, Sarah's Egyptian slave. So without going way too far back in the story, remember that Sarah and Abraham had fertility issues a few chapters before. Sarah was unable to conceive, although she wanted a child. And so in haste, she offered Hagar, or Hagar, her non-Israelite slave, to Abram, who later became Abraham, so that she might obtain children through her, as chapter 16, verse 2 puts it. Now, that is some classic ancient form of surrogacy right there. Uh, Only that this kind is through a slave, non-Israelite woman, and there is no form of consent nor compensation. And I'm pretty sure someone has worked on fertility and surrogacy in the Hebrew Bible. In any case, several chapters down in the passage, Ishmael is born. And 13 years or so later, Sarah finally gets her own child, Isaac. So by the time we get to this passage in Genesis 21 verse 8, uh, you know, we have two major things happening. One good news and the other not so good. Of course, the good news is that Sarah finally has a child somewhat supernaturally, and rightly names the child after the joy of the moment, which is Yitzhak, right? Laughter. Uh, The not-so-good news is that Abraham now has two sons, one through a slave member of the family, who is quite, you know, illegitimate considering factors such as bloodline, ethnicity, and, you know, all of the above, the implication on divine covenantal plans in the Hebrew Bible. Right, Paul, I'm glad you're um, highlighting there seems to be uh, an implicit question about who among these now two sons of Abraham really belongs in the line of the promise, right? So um, noting as well the important role firstborn, the primary role that firstborn sons played in maintaining one's progeny and legacy in ancient Israelite culture it seems as though things are probably going to go pretty badly for Ishmael. Yeah, uh, that's sad, Rosie. Uh, The passage is about a wrestle for inheritance. Mm. Indeed, the exact word is used by the NRSV in verse 10, when Sarah argues that Hagar and his son be cast out because the son of the slave woman shall not inherit along with my son, you know, says Sarah. Something interesting about the word yeresh, right, from the root yeresh, used here, like nahala, which is another word for inheritance in the Hebrew Bible, it literally means to occupy, to possess, to seize upon, to take by driving out previous tenants. Hmm. The meaning of the word has a certain territorial and you know colonial not to be too strong in my translation sense, only that here it is used to imply shared inheritance, not a complete takeover necessarily, although that too could be argued. And I think what Sarah is not happy about is that her son might be sharing his inheritance with another child of Abraham. Okay, yeah, maybe it would help our listeners to understand a little bit more about what you mean by inheritance, right? So that seems to be at issue here. What 
are these two right. young boys, men, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, competing for exactly? Honestly, it is quite unclear. But the closest we come to what might be an inheritance is back in chapter 17, the chapter about God's covenant with Abraham. And the covenant over there assures Abraham and his offspring exceedingly great success in all areas of life. You know, it assures them of a large family. Verse 4 of chapter 17 puts it as a multitude of nations. Uh, there's, you know, fruitfulness. Kings shall come out of you, says verse 6 of chapter 17. And then there's also a large portion of land. Actually, the entire land of Canaan is promised mm -hmm. to Abraham and his offspring. Another important feature of this covenant is that it is everlasting. It is throughout generations. That is, it is beyond Abraham's lifetime. It extends to his children, indeed, his male children, as we see in verse 14 of chapter 17. So I think this is where the idea of passing on, you know, something, property, uh, you know, blessing or something, something that I would call inheritance surfaces in the text. I should state too that at this point, Ishmael was already born, yet the covenant foretells the birth of Isaac and singles Isaac out, not Ishmael, as the bearer of this divine promise after Abraham is no more basically bypassing the actual firstborn son of Abraham. So in some way, the competition between the two boys and the eventual you know, explosion of Hagar in chapter 21 is preempted by God's plan in chapter 17. Quite unfairly, I should, I should say. Also. I'm glad you're actually naming it as unfair because it does seem there's a deep injustice that's being done here um, that somehow uh, Hagar and Ishmael alone are being made to face the consequences of Sarah's and Abraham's choices earlier uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Right. Um, aside from their obvious expulsion, there's he's being disinherited uh, on several levels yeah. in in a cruel way mm -hmm. and in a culture where a single mother with a son there's there's significant consequences right. for that. Yeah, that's right. It is actually you know quite gross, like you rightly described. But that's not just the only thing. There are other things that I would, you know, equally describe as unfair. Right? Number one, they being slaves, uh, they being, you know, foreigners, like Egyptian migrants, if, if you like, and the ways in which they identified, you know, all of these things cover or uncover multiple layers of unfairness. So I'm going to try and talk briefly about each of them. First of all, Hagar being a slave. I want to state here that you know, for preachers out there, Hagar is not just a maid, right, but a slave in that she was owned. Her mistress determined her life, including whom she could go to bed or should go to bed with. In fact, her child Ishmael was for Sarah, not her. The plan at the beginning was for her to have a child for Sarah. So Ishmael became uh, uh, Hagar's only after Sarah did not want him anymore. And I understand the ambiguity around translating words like Amma and Eved, which are you know, the two prominent words for you know, slavery in the Hebrew Bible. Yet plenty of evidence proves that slaves like Hagar and slavery as a practice were a common part of the cultural or you know, household or family systems of the ancient 
Near East, to be to be precise, the ancient you know Israelite uh, society at large. Oh, I'm really glad you're pointing to this um, to the translation of these Hebrew words, especially Amar or Eved or Avad. They do have multiple ways that they could be translated, but it's not appropriate to just kind of uh, gloss over what you have highlighted here, that they are owned human beings, right? So while a ma could be translated as maidservant or simply as servant, avad means to serve, to work, to labor as a slave, as an owned person. It certainly doesn't always mean to enslave in all instances. And, and there are different, um, I guess, levels in which someone's service mm -hmm. could be enlisted um, within ancient Israelite culture. That's right. But that translation mm -hmm. is a complex one. And particularly in the American context for preachers, it has to be informed by the ancient cultures behind the Hebrew text and without apology, right? So in that case, you, you are right, right, Paul. We have to be willing to represent uh, more complexly what it might have meant to the ancient Israelites uh, rather than kind of um, kowtowing to our own desires to soften harsh words and practices in what we regard as a sacred text. Uh, so so we don't want to gloss right. this over. We want to kind of actually thicken it. And to that mm -hmm. extent, we're adding details for preachers to really consider in the life of Hagar and in her plight and that of her son. That's right. The other thing is that Hagar was a foreigner from Egypt. She was not an Israelite, right? She was a migrant, so to speak, which I previously alluded to. We can imagine the challenges that being a migrant, being a foreigner alone might have presented, you know, in a country that you're not from, or in a state that you're not from. And I think about this, you know, in light of other experiences of foreign women in Israel, in the Hebrew Bible, you know, namely Ruth, Esther, Rahab, you know, etc. Additionally, how she's identified or described in the passage is really, really interesting. And, you know, probably a, a better word would even be problematic. Two key ones are Hagar the Egyptian, quote, uh, and the slave woman, you know. And for Ishmael, he sees it from being Ishmael, as we know him, to the boy or the son of the slave woman. Mm. So, the, so the switch from the use of proper names to descriptive labels, for me, is meant here to emphasize their non-nativeness and certainly something about their identity that doesn't fit so as to strengthen the argument that she and her son are not legitimate members of this divinely chosen family and that they cannot partake of this inheritance. Mm. Right. So you're you're highlighting too the kind of um subtle linguistic play that's happening here to demote, maybe and even slightly dehumanize mm -hmm. them so that what is clearly a painful event can somehow uh retain a logic within this covenantal um idea that we've been talking about. Are there that's any right. things that you would like to offer preachers um to look further into? maybe on these themes that you're highlighting? Uh, of course. I think there's something about naming practices in the Hebrew Bible and how that is often used to reinforce the otherness of people, especially foreigners. Much like how identity and race sometimes work in, in America, where there is always an attempt to categorize people in very unhealthy ways, just so to disqualify them from certain privileges. I encourage preachers to explore that phenomenon and to highlight some of the 
ordering practices that may be inherent in our own ways of being and doing, right? The other potential preaching tip or topics that might be explored here is certainly the issue of fertility and childbirth or maybe even surrogacy in the passage. For me, I'm interested in the hope and desire of having children and passing on an inheritance to them or you know, children sustaining one's legacy after death. It can be very disappointing if one's body is unable to make that desire possible. And here in this passage, the inability to procreate is mixed with divine promise and a miracle, especially as Isaac is presented as a miracle child. Infertility is not uncommon among people today. I'm sure many people today seek a miracle through fertility medicine or even trust God that their bodies will be supernaturally fixed and enabled to produce children. And again, I don't exactly know what this passage might say to people in these situations, but at least recognizing that this passage is a witness to the fact that infertility has always been around might offer some wisdom or some encouragement. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful thing for preachers to explore and think about. Um, these are obviously not easy topics, right? Um, not, not at all. But as you said, the week right prior, right? So we we just read Genesis 18 um, mm -hmm. in the lectionary, right? So the, as you say, these are um, these ancient passages are actually talking about infertility in a more open way than we might be comfortable with in our own modern world, right. in which we use, as you've, as you've highlighted here, fertility medicine to address issues in the ancient world, at least, there was only one cure and it involved divine intervention, right? So um, we might mask some of the same pain behind mm -hmm. modern medicine, but uh, I think there's something to what you've said, which is naming both the pain and the possibility in thinking about birth. Uh, that's that's right. common to even people that have had an easy time getting pregnant and then and then others who really have not. But I am very glad that we live in a time when I think women are speaking more openly and men mm -hmm. are speaking more openly together That's about right. that struggle. That's right. Perhaps the, the other thing that I would offer here is more on the side of caution than a preaching tip. Uh, it's about God approving of the explosion, right? Mm. That is very visible in a the text. Then after God does that, he compensates Ishmael with a relatively good life. You know, I just want to say to preachers that don't skip that. Talk about it. And when you do, please don't defend God. Also, don't yield to the temptation of presenting that as the will and the plan of God, because it's very easy to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, the point is, it is unfair to exclude Ishmael from this inheritance, and that's it. And I think there's something very empowering about engaging the biblical text by resisting some of its claims. For me, it is bold reading. And if I were preaching, I would certainly encourage my listeners not to be afraid to resist what the text wants them to believe sometimes. Ooh, Paul, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> Man. Thank you for helping us with what is uh, as you've highlighted, a really difficult passage and nudging us towards some of the painful but really ripe possibilities for preaching with it. My pleasure. <laughs> Friends, that will wrap us up for this week. Thanks for tuning in to First Reading, and we hope you've gotten something helpful from this conversation. If so, please consider taking a minute or two to share the episode with a preacher, a teacher, or Bible lover in your life. 
and help expand our first reading podcast community. You can also help us keep this effort going by supporting the podcast financially. We welcome donations on our website at firstreadingpodcast.com, where, hey, you'll also find nearly 200 searchable back episodes on almost every Old Testament passage in the lectionary. If you like to collect merchandise from your favorite podcast, we've got you covered. Consider ordering a sturdy first reading coffee mug or a Nefesh t-shirt from the merch page on the website. You can always reach us via email at firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com or drop us a line on Facebook. Once again, thanks to all of you for listening. And until next time, I'm Rosie Candethel. And I am Paul Essa. Have a great week.